Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health by providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources. Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Rupa Health. They make lab testing easy fabulous, doable for both you, the clinician, and you, the person being prescribed the lab, the patient. Um, consider using Rupa as just a super, super smart solution to all your functional laboratory needs. Thanks again to my wonderful platinum sponsors. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And I'm really excited to tell you that today I have one of the very tippy top, 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 top best minds in our field. Uh, as you can see, Dr. Heather Zawicki is here with me. And before I jump in to her amazingness and we get into our great conversation today, I want to just give a shout out to the two um, diamond companies that make this podcast possible day in and day out, year in and year out. I think we're going on year seven now. And that is Rupa Health and it is Biotics. So Rupa Health, it has made functional laboratory testing, which is notoriously complicated for the patients and also for us clinicians, a completely smooth ride. They have revolutionized access to this extraordinary body of testing. I am grateful for it. My patients are grateful for it. The other clinicians are in my practice uh, absolutely love Rupa Health. And Biotics has been around forever. Many of us uh, lean on Biotics and rely on Biotics because they have such high quality products. I actually uh, have my Biotics curcumin. I went upstairs and, and grabbed it. I am, by the way, I haven't mentioned it. I'm outside, we're live. I'm in Baja, Mexico. And um, anyway, my, my Biotics curcumin pretty much goes where I go. So. Thank you both Biotics and Rupa for just taking good care of New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. And with that, I will move over to telling you about Dr. Zwicky. So not in her bio is that she came to my alma mater, NUNM, National University of Natural Medicine, when I was a second year student and she was our immunology professor. And she came to us from Yale where she was conducting incredibly interesting research on T-cells. We're doing some work with T-cells, I believe, right? Um, yeah. Our class was standing room only because not only did the entire student body want to hear what she had to say, all of the teachers, the faculty wanted to hear. I don't know if you remember back then, we, it was just this packed, exciting, she brought an electricity and an excitement to the school. And then she went on to start HealthGut Research Institute. And that's um, just a really premier research institute these days, and it's the place that we conducted our study, but let me hush and just tell you about her, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, she's an, Dr. Zwicky is an inspiring researcher and educator. She breaks down complex science, science into stories that everyone can understand. She bridges integrative medicine and Western science, describing mechanisms that underline many natural medicines. Uh, Heather earned her PhD in immunology and microbiology from the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center with a focus on infectious disease and vaccine development. Dr. Zwicky went on to complete a postdoc fellowship and teach at Yale University of Medicine, where she worked on immunotherapy for cancer. She launched the HealthGot Research Institute and served as its director for 17 years. Uh, she established the graduate uh, the School of Graduate Studies at NUNM, developing programs in integrative medicine research, nutrition, and global health, among others. 
Dr. Zwicky currently co-leads an NIH-funded clinical research training program focused on training the next generation of integrative medicine researchers. She teaches at many universities and lectures at conferences around the globe. Heather, it's great to see you and welcome to New Frontiers. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Let's jump right in. So we're we're going to talk microbiology uh, biology today. We're going to you know we're talking the microbiome, prebiotics, probiotics. Um, do we know? So since since when I graduated NUNM, as you maybe recall, I went over to a, la a clinical laboratory, and we were the first clinical laboratory to release a. Um, DNA stool test, you know, the first PCR for, for clinical access outside of the research setting. And I remember back then thinking, okay, we're going to be able to prescribe pinpoint probiotics to um, move the microbiome. And it was pretty fast that I realized that I was completely wrong. In fact, you know, this, <laughs> this, this level of insight was showing showing us that we need to chew our food, that we need to eat a whole food, sort of, it was very validating to what I learned of, in naturopathic medicine. But I mean, just talk to me about where we've come in the science. Like, what do we know about our microbiome today? Is there an, is there an optimal microbiome that we all want to achieve or is it everything you need? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I hate to remind you, but it's been almost 20 years since you embarked on that journey and I embarked on it with you. But um, we have learned an immense amount about the microbiome in 20 years. One of the big papers, I think that is seminal in this field came out a couple of years ago in 2019 from a group called Visconti. And what they showed is that between any two individuals, the microbiome may only be between four and 40% the same. Wow. Um, the low end being four and the top end being 40%. What is the same between individuals are the metabolites that the microbes make. And those are highly conserved between 80 and 95% conserved. So you and I might have different microbes, but our microbes are making the exact same metabolites or the fermentation products that they make are the same between us. They're shared. Oh, that is, that's ridiculously interesting. So then, well, I guess I have a couple of questions. I mean, you know, I've been interested in looking at epigenetics and, you know, biological age, longevity, et cetera. And there's definitely, I mean, they, they you know, centenarian, healthy centenarian and unhealthy, you know, older folks' guts have certainly been investigated. And there are some like keystone bacteria. It appears like acromantia is hanging out in a lot of healthy centenarians. And I want your uh, thoughts on that. But what you just said suggests that maybe it's not correct for us to be looking at the microbiome at all. So talk to both of those. Okay. So first of all, there are definitely keystone species and those keystone species may not be the highest in number, but their function is critical to health and longevity. Um, so acromancia is one that has appeared. Um, it's interesting because it shows up in a lot of people who are older um, or who have survived a longer period of time. It also shows up in people who are leaner. However, if you hit the ground and you go start talking to nutritionists who are ordering all sorts of um, microbiome testing now, they're finding plenty of acromancia in people who are obese as well. So it's not as clear as a single microbe and it probably never will be because our microbiomes are so different from each other. Now this question of should we be measuring the microbiome, I think is a good one because one of the things that we're finding is that especially people who have ailments, so like we find people with Parkinson's disease are missing certain microbes and it's not an individual microbe, it's a class. So it's not like we're saying, oh, lactobacillus is gone and it's not. But what we're saying is the microbes that produce short chain fatty acids are reduced. So there's a whole series of 10 to 15 microbes that across hundreds of people with Parkinson's, you're going to see reduced. And those are the ones that produce something that 
would reduce inflammation and specifically neuroinflammation, such as short chain fatty acids. Now, where that starts to become really interesting is when we say, let's look at people with Parkinson's versus people with rheumatoid arthritis versus people with multiple sclerosis. And it turns out different microbes are missing in different disease populations. So, and again, it's less about the microbe and more about the functionality of that microbe. And what is that microbe supposed to be producing? And has another microbe stepped in and produced it instead? Because remember, there's flexibility. We also have to remember genetically, microbes are different than human cells, right? In that yeah. they can transfer their DNA from one microbe to another. So yeah. just because one microbe is missing doesn't mean that that functionality is necessarily gone. But in individuals who have a disease population or who are diagnosed with a disease, what we're finding is the functionality is gone. So, Wait, so what I think we're going to see is that we're going to see a movement to measuring microbial metabolites as opposed yeah. to measuring the microbes themselves. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly what I was thinking. I mean, what could, yeah. you know, it's starting to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's happening at the lab level. At this point, as a researcher, I can measure microbial metabolites, I can send samples out and get a list of metabolites back. As a clinician, it's still a little expensive for you to do that. Well, and ha have they established ranges that would be useful within the clinical setting? Certainly, there are. Um, so first thing we need to understand is while we talk about, you know, 300, 400 different types of species of microbes in your gut, we're talking about metabolites in the thousands, right? Yeah. So now identifying which metabolites are critical to health is also going to be important. We know from an immunological perspective, which metabolites are important for the immune system. And we know neurologically, which metabolites are important for the nervous system and for the cardiovascular system, et cetera. What we don't know is which combinations are going to ultimately lead to longevity or lead to disease yet, but we're getting there. Yeah. It's amazing to me how fast this field is growing. It's extraordinary. It's incredibly interesting. And I'm glad to hear that we're getting there. And it's just nice to have a little bit of a snapshot into, you know, next generation <laughs> stool testing. You know, we, the yeah. PCR was next generation 20 years ago. As you said. <laughs> yeah, now this, now we will be, we'll be looking at the microbial metabolome. That's awesome. When then we're going to be looking at proteome and, and, and the human metabolome, et cetera. And, um, you know, the, the um, epigenome as we're, as we're doing, I think then this is tangential, but I know you'll have some thoughts on it. We're going to have to be leaning heavily duty on AI to help weed through the, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of compounds. What are your, what are oh, you thinking? You're absolutely right. It's, it's something that, you know, frankly, 20 years ago, we probably didn't have the technology to do it. Um, but today we do. And so you're going to start to see it's, it's a lot of data to crunch. Mm -hmm. And when we do clinical trials to even look at that data, when you're comparing, you know, 1800 data points from person one to 1800 data points from person two, and now you've got a clinical trial of hundred people, how to, how to do that data analysis gets really complicated. Yeah. 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 I, I was at A4M conference in December and Peter Diamandis spoke and he said something about, you know, if you, you'll be out of business as a clinician, if you don't start embracing well, it, I mean, AI I don't, is not ready for the clinical setting for most cases that I'm aware of. It, there are some places that it's being used, but it's, it's amazing that we're closer. You know, for many years we've been thinking about it, but we're actually right at the door, would you say? Yeah, we're absolutely getting there. Um, and what it will mean ultimately is, you know, people will have a lot more control over their own personal health journey because they'll know what's happening at any point in time. They'll be able to tell. I think the other thing that's really fun to put together with all of this are all the new wearable devices that are coming out. Yeah. So people can actually say, okay, here's what's going on internally. And then I can wear my aura ring or I can wear my wristband or, you know, whatever it is. So I can track how that's having an effect on 
my mood and my heart rate variability and all those other things. That's awesome. You're absolutely right. It's really, it's very exciting. And I, I, I just, I, I, yeah, I want to be an early adopter or continue to be early adopter of, of, of where we're headed because it's, it's awesome. Um, all right. What else do we want to talk about? So most of us are taking probiotics. Obviously, we're prescribing them routinely. Um, you know, primarily lactobacillus and bifido, I think, are the big players. We're using acromantia as well. You know, there's always a lot of energy, a lot of um, emphasis on, you know, viable until exp expiration that, you know, the, the contents need to be alive and, and thriving, et cetera. And like, you're, you're, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I know you have some big thoughts on that. So I wanted to just set you big up with that question. That. All right, go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm skeptical that the microbes need to be alive until they hit the gut. So that is my, my first piece. There's been quite a few studies that show that many probiotics are not alive when they hit the gut. And that, that um, I think makes people nervous. They're like, oh my gosh, then it's not going to work. That's not what the research says. The research says that those microbes don't have to be alive and they can still be effective, especially in the immune system, right? So it may be different for cardiovascular system. It may be different depending on what effect you're trying to encourage with a probiotic, but at least for the immune system, the microbes don't have to be alive. Well, now, let me, let me just stop you because okay. I, and I want to hear, I want you to pick right up but you just said something kind of provocative that that's true for the immune system, but might not be for the cardiovascular system or the or, or the central nervous system. Is that, do you have any inclining whether it's true or not? <laughs> like, <laughs> might we need them alive in one setting, but not in another? I'm just well, curious. So keep in mind that cells of the immune system have receptors on them that are called toll-like receptors or TLRs, and they can bind to a microbial cell wall and the microbe doesn't have to be alive and it will still stimulate a cell of the immune system. So if you just have a microbe cell wall, you're going to stimulate the immune system. That's right. Oh, yeah. Don't think that Exactly. And now I don't think that's what's happening. Um, I actually think it's more complex than that, but regardless of whether a microbe is alive or dead, it can stimulate the immune system. Now, what I think is happening with a probiotic is that when we make probiotics, we put food in the bottle to feed those microbes so that they don't die, right? But the microbes in the bottle are eating that food and they're producing metabolites. And so when you're taking a probiotic, you are simultaneously taking what we call a postbiotic. You are taking the metabolite that the microbe made. The reason that I say we know this works for the immune system is that we know that if you have lactobacillus in the bottle and you feed it an inulin like psyllium husk or some other fiber, it will produce short chain fatty acids. And when you take that probiotic, you are taking short chain fatty acids in addition to taking the lactobacillus. Do you need the lactobacillus at that point or could you just take the short chain fatty acids? Hard to say because nobody's doing that research yet. However, what we don't know, and the reason I say I don't know if this is true yet for um, the nervous system or the cardiovascular system, is for example, we know that one of the metabolites that a bacteria makes is neurotransmitters. It makes dopamine, serotonin, makes some GABA, right? So the, the food that you have to feed a microbe to get serotonin is tryptophan. Did we put tryptophan? as a food in the probiotic bottle? If we didn't, we're not getting serotonin on the other end. Did we put tyrosine in the bottle as a food for the microbe? If not, we're not getting dopamine on the other end. But we are putting inulin in the bottle. And so we know we're getting short chain fatty acids. So we know we're feeding the immune system. Could we also feed the nervous system if we put the right food in a substrate? I think we could. I just think nobody's there yet. They're not doing that yet. That's ridiculously interesting, Heather. Like, right? Why? I mean, we could create, we could like revolutionize probiotics by yeah. really manipulating their substrate, their substrate. cocktail. Whoa. <laughs> What we're starting to see now is we're starting to see some very forward thinking companies put polyphenols, so substances from um, 
plants like spices into the bottle and seeing if they're getting a different effect with their probiotics. Specifically, they're looking for anti-anxiolytic effects, um, anti-anxiety, lowering stress, lowering depression, using some of the things that we know have an effect on, on stress if we feed you them um, normally, right? Not as a probiotic. So I think it'll be really interesting. The other thing is that there are lots of companies now that are looking at postbiotics. So they're not looking at the probiotic or the prebiotic. They're saying, why bother with those steps? Because so many people have microbiomes that are dysbiotic. They, they're just out of balance. Mm -hmm. So what if we just feed them the metabolites themselves? Now you can, you can find butyrate, which is one of the metabolites on the market. Yet, if you look at the clinical trials with butyrate, they're woefully, woefully negative. Butyrate, we you have mean, to- You mean not negative, no action. Yeah, okay. So you would think that butyrate would be an anti-inflammatory because yeah. we know that when butyrate is made in the gut, it's anti-inflammatory. But if you feed butyrate, we don't see any evidence of reduction of inflammation. So what's going on there? Is it the butyrate is not reaching the gut? What's happening? We don't know. What we do know is that usually butyrate is made in ratio with acetate and propionate. There's three short chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. And usually it's three acetates to one propionate and one butyrate. So if you feed hmm. butyrate, you completely throw off that ratio. So it's entirely possible that when we're trying to exogenously add a single metabolite, we're doing more harm than good. We're actually inhibiting we synthesis. Are the, like, so then, so, so the bacteria, those particular producers, are they, sure, they stop it's producing? Sure, feedback loop. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Now, there are products out there that are a complete set of microbial metabolites. They're complete postbiotics. And they are essentially the equivalent of a sterilized fecal transplant, where they take someone who's healthy, who has a full set of microbes, who's eating an organic diet, who's eating um, more than 30 plant-based foods per week, who's eating all sorts of polyphenols, and they're making all of these microbial metabolites in their gut. And then that is packaged into a postbiotic. And when you use a postbiotic that is complete like that, then we start seeing major differences in health, mood differences, neurological differences, immunological differences, GI differences. Like it is truly having an overall effect on human health. Wow. It's a complete, it's the complete, it's the complete package. It's the complete package. And, and even the, are the bacteria sense. and the viruses there? They're just, they're dead. They're dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're still, you're still getting that information from them. Like they're providing some kind of information, even if they're not viable. Even if they're not viable, they can be providing part of the story. Absolutely. Now, the the whole field has been moving towards a postbiotic um, for a long time. It was starting in Europe because they wanted to be able to add things to foods like orange juice. And if you try to add a probiotic to orange juice, the acidity kills it. So the field started moving towards postbiotics because they they wanted something that you could put into a food product. Um, and as a result, the first thing that they were called is parabiotics, where we heat kill the probiotic and we get a parabiotic. And now we've got this thing that's a postbiotic, which is we're sure the metabolites are there. So the postbiotics, we know that there's metabolites. Parabiotics has the heat killed microbes. And you can have products that have combinations of parabiotic and postbiotic. And you could do a combination of a probiotic, prebiotic, parabiotic, postbiotic, et cetera. But it might also be why fermented foods have had such a positive effect on people for so long in that they're essentially the whole package. Hey there, listeners. It's your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I have a question for you. How much time do you spend ordering functional lab tests for your patients? I bet it's a lot. Ordering from multiple lab companies for hundreds of patients can quickly turn into hours of admin time. But there's a new way to order lab tests I'm excited to share with you. 
Rupa Health is a tool that lets you order from over 30 specialty labs in a single portal. You can order all the tests you normally do from companies like Dutch, Vibrant, Genova, and Great Plains, and so many more. Imagine you're ordering a hormone panel for a patient that includes tests from three different labs. You have to log onto three different websites, place separate orders, come back weeks later to check on tracking numbers, download results, et cetera, et cetera. Rupa eliminates all of that by having all ordering, tracking results in a single place, and they also order, handle invoicing, uh, tracking shipments, automated follow-ups, personalized instructions for completing tests, and much more. The best part about Rupa is that it is free for you. Go to rupahealth.com, that's R-U-P-A health.com, and join a live demo or sign up to see how it works. Now let's get back to today's show. So there was this really interesting study that came out last year. Actually, this is 2023. It came out in 2021. So I forget what <laughs> this one past year. Anyway, it was looking at fermented foods and it was showing that the only thing better than eating 30 plant-based foods per week is to add fermented foods to your diet. Wow. And I think that it's really telling. There was something a little funny about that study too, in that when they first did the research, they had all of these people who had added a fermented food to their diet and they weren't that healthy. And they went back and they said, well, maybe we need more than one. And so then they changed it to two or more fermented foods and they got huge amounts of um, what we're looking for, which is uh, beta diversity of the microbiome. Turns out if you're just looking at one fermented food, most of the people were talking about beer. <laughs> if, it's, if you're just adding beer to your diet, not that healthy. <laughs> That's awesome. But if you add two or more, then we've added things like yogurt and sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha. So yeah, one fermented food might just be beer or wine, um, but two or more, we're usually talking about adding some healthy foods. Oh, isn't that, that's great. That's great. So <laughs> yeah. let me just, let me ask you about um, this postbiotic. So actually doing a heat killed FMT product. So you're getting the parabiotic and you're also getting the postbiotic metabolites and you're getting the whole yeah. hit and caboodle from uh, a health, a extremely healthy individual. That's uh, absolutely amazing. I guess we're live. Did you hear that <laughs> or no? I didn't hear oh, it. Okay, fabulous. Then there was. But that's okay because okay. it's live. We're just getting a thunderstorm, which we never get in Oregon. <laughs> I'm like, it's thundering outside right now. in January. Yeah, that's yeah, not. You know. <laughs> um, okay, so. But ultimately, so the so I can I can see, and I and I know that I know that you have some some case uh, reports around using this postbiotic, this pre and post or this post and parabiotic um, mm -hmm. product, and I I'd love to hear. It's extraordinary, and I'm incredibly excited about it. But I can't help but think we want to more than just feed them this nutrition, we actually want to restore the microbiome so they start to That's train right. themselves. So can you speak to how to, do, so is that the gateway to restoring the microbiome? Are you seeing that phenomena happen also? So ultimately they can transition off of using yes. that in conjunction, I'm assuming with a full functional approach and diet changes, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, talk, talk about that. Yeah, so you nailed it. Um, if they don't change their diet, then eventually they're just going to go back to where they were. Although what we find for a lot of folks who come in who have um, extreme dysbiosis, it's because they've had to be on antibiotics for a long period of time. And now they're finally off the antibiotics, but they can't seem to get their gut back. Um, and this is one of those ways that you can start to restore your gut. So I think one of the things that we tend to forget is that the metabolites that your microbes make also serve as um, the That's precursors yeah. yeah, for secondary metabolites, right? So if you don't have the initial set of metabolites, nor do you have anything downstream. So if you're able to feed a postbiotic and get that initial part of 
metabolism taken care of, then all the downstream effects start to fall into place and you start to put all of the feedback loops back together. And so what we're seeing, um, again, and this is clinical, so this isn't uh, randomized controlled data, this is case studies, but what we're seeing is it can take, um, depends on the diagnosis, but for the average person, it's three to seven months that they take a postbiotic and then they don't need to take it anymore. And it's not immediate, which, I you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a microbiome researcher at Harvard, and she said, well, good, it shouldn't be immediate. Like, if it's immediate, then you should be suspect, because then, it, you know, people's guts are going to disintegrate again. It, it does take a little while, um, but it's not permanent. Uh, it, I mean, you're not on a supplement permanently. You're on it for three to seven months, and then what we're seeing is most people after seven months can come off. And we're seeing that for autoimmunity, for some neurological diagnoses, for mental health diagnoses. Um, the mental health thing, I think, is really interesting. Yes. But you also have to remember serotonin, dopamine, GABA, all of those are metabolites made by microbes. So they're in a postbiotic. Yes. So you're actually taking some serotonin and you're taking some dopamine and you're taking some GABA. And so we're seeing like people who are suffering from depression or anxiety, it's, you know, three doses and they're like, well, I feel way better. I feel better. So you might see turnaround in certain circumstances pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've got some case studies from some physicians where it's pretty amazing how fast um, people who have anxiety and depression turn around. Yeah. yeah. It's usually well, a week. I mean, the reality is, I mean, uh, with, you know, I'll do respect to your Harvard colleague in clinical practice, we know some people are just incredibly sensitive and that mm -hmm. information will impact quickly. I think the real transformation, like I always think of it as the changing of the guards, you know, the, and, maybe, and this is probably what she was referring to, like the real rebuilding and redesigning yeah. the microbiome. That's the, that's the longer journey. But I think people can experience pretty profound effects relatively immediately, as you're describing, or very quickly. I agree. I think the other thing is that she sees folks who have been in the hospital and who have picked up some drug-resistant uh, microbes in the hospital, and it yes. takes a while for those things to get out of your system. Oh, man, yeah. But, you know, shifting our microbiome can happen really quickly. I was um, reviewing a paper with a student this morning, and... Four hours after eating a high fiber meal, you see a complete shift in microbes. Four hours. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I remember yeah. Le learning in school actually. Nigel Plummer did a de delivered a lecture, and what did he say? Like a whole new genus or species in 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 twenty minutes or something, just because of the gene exchange that you mentioned yeah. earlier. Like you can change things up pretty pretty darn quickly. Well, it's a so, so this is. A, this is a very exciting time. And I know people listening to this are, are going to be really jazzed up that we're, uh, we're really moving away from, from the era of lactobacillus and bifido, although they, well, they have, they're, they're important players in our guts. So they're, so they're going to be, I think, part of our, our probiotic sure. world and as they should be, but you know, There's what a couple things I think about lactobacillus and bifidobacteria first is, um, if we start thinking about all of the insults that we get to our system, so our exposure to pesticides, and maybe you try to eat all organic, but the moment you eat out, you're probably being exposed to a pesticide here or there. They are highly sensitive to pesticides, and we know that glyphosate kills those guys off. So if you get lactobacillus and bifidobacterium for a day, it might just be enough for what you need for what you were exposed to the day before, right? So we know people feel better when they take a probiotic. Yeah. I'm not saying that probiotics are, are ineffective, yeah. not at all. I'm just saying that for people who are really sick, we might have an, an addition that might yeah. be even better. Right, yeah. And I think that that's an important point to make because there are, there are good products out there. Oh, for sure. You know, we've, we've used them forever. And of course, you know, the, the addition of fermented foods too and, and a whole diet. But yeah, this new door that's being opened is, 
you know, this whole postbiotic world is very, it's very exciting. Uh, so I think so, the other piece that's really exciting is prebiotics. Yeah. Right? Let me, well, so let me ask other, you, let me okay, just ask you one more thing, because the train will leave the station. Three <laughs> to seven months for, you know, a real therapeutic transformation. I mean, are you taking a postbiotic daily? Is just part of your regular health regimen? I mean, is this something recommended? I mean, I, I, I have to admit that I've, I'm, I'm using them and we're, we're, and we'll bring them into clinical practice. And I'm, you know, what about, what about long-term use? Is there, is it, is it just, is it a waste of money? <laughs> is it, is it smart? Is it just unnecessary? Oh, I don't think it's unnecessary. I think that the average person could probably benefit from taking a postbiotic daily. They are still at a stage where they're relatively expensive. So yeah. you might pay $200 for a uh, you know, a month, which in the supplement world, that's a little higher than the average supplement. But if you think about all of the work that goes into creating one, it's why they're a little bit more expensive. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, I think for folks who can afford it, and especially if you're thinking about longevity, we do know it's reducing inflammation, it's helping people sleep, it's helping, you know, with a lot of the things that we know uh, shorten our lifespan. So it probably will increase longevity. Yeah. And wasn't there some longevity, sort of some, some, some early, early research looking at C elegance. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, and it makes, um, it makes the C elegance much more vigorous. <laughs> so yeah, people get a lot of energy, uh, or worms get a lot of energy, but worms. So <laughs> That's cool. Okay. Okay. So then it's good to you. So we can use it long-term. There's no contraindication. Maybe mm -hmm. if people want to, given that it is, you know, it's, it is a little bit more expensive. You could probably take it less frequently make every, oh, every sure. other day or every few days or maybe. Okay. I mean, All I right. recommend that for a lot of supplements. Like we did some research uh, with Oregon health and science university gosh, now a decade ago, showing that we actually, in, this was an animal study, but we actually got a stronger effect if we administered an alpha-lipoic acid supplement every other day or every third day than we did if we got, gave it every day. And why and do you think, think that is? Yeah. I think it has to do with receptor recycling. So if you're administering something that requires a receptor for uptake, you have to remember that once you give it, then the receptor binds to the substrate and it gets internalized. And then you don't have the receptor for 24 hours. So there's no receptor the next day. You might as well just wait and give it the day after when the receptor's back. Hmm. God, that's fascinating. That's a whole nother conversation of, you know, what might that apply to? Exactly. <laughs> like vitamin D. Although there's evidence that keeping vitamin D up, taking it at least weekly and maybe even more frequent has shown consistent D levels in serum, which was actually associated with better outcome. Yeah. And then the other thing you have to remember with vitamin D is vitamin D receptor has different homologs and some people can have the highest levels of vitamin D. And if their vitamin D receptor has a mutation in it, they just never get enough vitamin D. Mm. So I think we always forget about the receptors. Like yeah, we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting, right? Yeah, top of mind. You're right. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you were going to talk about um, prebiotics, and you were going to go in, into something interesting. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I think that the field of prebiotics is another topic that um, is hugely expanding. So one of the things that we saw about four years ago now, is there was a great study showing that um, certain spices are acting as prebiotics and that they're manipulating our microbiome. And then they started showing that different polyphenols had an effect on the microbiome. And now we're seeing that one of the reasons that a lot of medicinal herbs are working the way they are is they're affecting the microbiome. So it totally shifts how we think about herbal medicine, in my opinion, like we yeah. have these herbs and that react differently in different people. Well, one of the reasons that they're reacting differently in different people has to do with the starting microbiome of the person. So you may give somebody an herbal medicine and it works great for them because their microbiome immediately digests that herbal medicine and produces the substrates that it needs. And in the next person, they have a different microbiome and yeah. they don't get the same result. 
And I think, you know, again, as we look at things that historically we've struggled to explain in natural medicine, like adaptogens, how come, you know, when cortisol is high, it does one thing. And when cortisol is low, it does a different thing. Well, because when cortisol is high, your microbiome looks one way. And when cortisol is low, your microbiome looks a different way. So different microbes are processing it into different substrates, depending on where the cortisol level is. So we're starting to understand now why we see different results with herbal medicines than we see with pharmaceuticals. That's fascinating. It's like the host influence on the microbiome that dictates the microbiome's activity and the production of postbiotics. It makes me think about genistein. I mean, you know, going back to to my research and thinking about epigenetics and, you know, and polyphenols are what we're calling We've been calling them methylation adaptogens, but they're epinutrients extraordinaire. You know, they do extraordinary. There's all sorts of interesting stuff on influencing the enzymes, you know, involved in epigenetic expression, like DNA methyltransferases and the 1011 translocation enzymes. But like the, a lot of them do that because they're transformed by the microbiome first. Maybe okay. all of them, but certainly a lot of them. And it makes me think about genistein and um uh, equal and, and, you know, genistein is just this extraordinary isoflavone. It's, it's an extraordinary epinutrient. If we can transform it, if we have the gut microbiome to transform it into equal, and then we have something that I think really is one of our most, is, is an important player systemically, even though some people are anxious about soy, which is, you know, our main source of genistein. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think the, if you just look at the structure of soy estrogens versus um, human estrogens, you see that it, it's totally different. And so the nervousness about soy is people who, who have a misconception. So yeah, no, I absolutely agree that when we started thinking about plant medicine, we started looking at it like they were pharmaceuticals. And so we're looking for just one active ingredient or two active ingredients, or maybe five. But what we have to remember is in this complete product of 300 things, there are going to be things that are shifting microbiomes, things that are binding to um, different uh, aspects of the DNA. Like there's so many different mechanisms. We're even finding nanoparticles in a lot of herbal medicines now. And remember that nanoparticles can, um, in different environments, make different shapes and bind to different receptors. So there's so many things that are going on. I think that we have to rethink how we think about herbal medicine. And I also think then that is going to influence as we think about prebiotics, we may choose a different prebiotic for one patient than we choose for another patient Yes, because their microbiome is different. I have a postdoc right now who's working on people with rheumatoid arthritis and can they even process green tea extract? Because if their microbes are missing, then they might not have the appropriate microbes for processing green tea. Whereas you wanna give them green tea to reduce their inflammation, does it work in people who are missing certain microbes? What do you mean process it? Like liberating the, the, the catechins or like, what do you mean? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Processing into the, so I think the easiest one to think about in terms of a pathway that is metabolite, secondary metabolite is think tryptophan microbes turn it into serotonin and then serotonin is further metabolized into melatonin, right? Yes. So you can't make melatonin unless you first make serotonin. So if that is the case, if you're missing the microbe to catalyze the reaction as serotonin, you're not going to sleep at night because you're also not going to make melatonin. Right. Right. So that's the sort of thing we're thinking about. I think the other thing that's really interesting in the prebiotic literature is starting to look at human milk oligosaccharides. Yes. So there are products out that have human milk oligosaccharides in them. And Mm -hmm. now when we're thinking about repairing a dysbiotic gut, so you give somebody a postbiotic and then you want them to eat all these plant-based foods to try to get their microbes going again, but we might need to back up a little bit. Like if we're thinking about folks who were born cesarean section and never breastfed, 
Yeah. We need to start with some human milk oligosaccharides to start feeding those microbes that never got the opportunity to fill their niche. So I love this idea of as we rebuild the gut, taking an approach that actually was physiological, that historically we were breastfed. So let's give them some human milk oligosaccharide. 100%. Yeah. And then we start adding some of the more plant-based foods and some of the spices and we gradually work our way up. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah. That makes complete sense that we would be, we would have human milk oligosaccharides in a, in a prebiotic uh, product. Yes. For the many, many adults who didn't, who weren't able to be breastfed. I actually sourced breast milk for my adopted daughter. I just was something that I was just in, aggressively committed to doing, you know, understanding yeah. it's understanding it's important. And yeah, I think that there's other times, you know, many of us were, were not able to have access to it. Yeah. So there's, yeah, it makes, it makes total sense that you would have the package <laughs> breast milk to fecal, fecal micro, microbiome transplants, <laughs> like the whole, the whole line oh. of the elementary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? Like it just in our, in our closing, um, I don't know if you mentioned it here, but before we got on, you, you talked about seeing some changes with, um, the postbiotic in Parkinson, which immediately made me take a note as I thought about somebody who I want to prescribe it to, um, you're looking at autoimmunity and seeing some amazing work there. I think in allergies also, there's some really amazing, uh, evidence in, 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 in the clinical setting, um, thinking just about the massive rise in allergic disease with, you know, the use of antibiotics, especially early in life. So just, you know, just in thinking like, as, as we wrap up, maybe some of your, your final thoughts on, I just threw out like 87 things, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's okay. So I think one of the things we have to remember, um, just to, to put it in context, we're at the beginning of 2023 and we've just come through a pandemic and we know that pandemics trigger autoimmunity. And I expect we're going to see a a large increase in autoimmunity because we know infectious disease and molecular mimicry are both big triggers. Right. And so um, the coronavirus, we know there's molecular mimicry there. We know that um, likely we're going to see incidents of diabetes, MS, uh, and, inflammatory bowel diseases increase. What the only peripheral mechanism that we know to stop autoimmunity is to increase T regulatory cells. And how do we increase T regulatory cells? We do it with our gut microbiome. Um, We do it with vitamin A and vitamin D and nutrition. And that's it. Like that's what we've got. So the more that we are paying attention to the microbiome right now, the more we might be able to curve the the upcoming autoimmune crescendo, if you will. Yes, yeah. it is coming. It'll what take a huge you know, point. Let me just I, I I did a podcast with Miami not too long ago. Um, they're a, they're a, um, what are they? I mean they they crunch a lot of data, but they anyway, go check the podcast out. We'll put it in the show notes. I can't even describe it. But one of the, what they said to me is that ANA is so prevalent now to you, to your, to to your point, they're doing this collaboration with Mount Sinai hospital and post COVID ANA levels are so, so, so high that the hospitals actually stopped testing them. There's no, they basically decided there's no reason because everybody's positive and, you know, reflexing to actually see what type and all of this is, uh, you know, something they've decided isn't, you know, isn't worth their focus, but there is this tsunami of, of autoimmunity that is already showing up early because we can see ANA, we tend to see it rise early. Yeah. And the unfortunate thing is that in our current system, you know, autoimmunity does this and we catch it when it's up here yes. somewhere. Yeah. We don't and think about a little down ANA. here, then we can actually push it off. Like we can, we can extend this length of time, maybe even prevent it. We know that clinicians are seeing lots and lots of diabetes come in the door. Um, and they don't know if it was undiagnosed pre-diabetes pre-COVID or if COVID is triggering diabetes. Um, we do know that there is a shared epitope, um, with a couple of diabetes antigens. So it's entirely possible that it's triggering. Type one. 
you're talking type one? Um, that is for type one. Yes. Um, that being said, um, it's because it's happening in adults, they're calling it type 1.5, right? Mm -hmm. Um, L LDA late mm -hmm. diabetes yeah. onset. Anyway, um, I just think that we have to remember, we do have a backup in our system. Like our backup is our T regulatory population. And if we have a good T regulatory population, we should be able to calm down any aberrant T cells. That That's actually what my research at Yale was showing was that when we did cancer vaccines on people, it triggered autoimmunity, but the T regulatory populations then shut it down within a few weeks. So if we can do that with what we're seeing now by increasing T regs, like it's a no brainer. The problem is it's diet, right? That how to get our good, our good T regulatory population. The number one way is omega-3 fatty acids. Well, where's our omega-3 fatty acid consumption in the United States? It's way low. Way down. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we really have to think about how we're counseling people to eat. And if they're not eating fish, then make sure they're taking omega-3s because we know that this is coming. And if you have a family history where you have a genetic background that you're prone to a particular type of autoimmunity, now is your time. Like take those omega-3s. Awesome. Omega-3s, number one, A and D you mentioned, and also potentially the postbiotic. Have you looked oh, at yeah. reg production with postbiotic? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And I'm assuming it was. And with the oligosaccharides. Yeah. I mean, it's the short chain fatty acid production really that's leading there. And the, and the number one metabolite in the postbiotic is short chain fatty acids. So um, yeah, it will also help with prevention. Well, um, Dr. Zwicky, it was awesome to get to spend a little bit of time with you today and, and just listen to your brilliance. It makes me Makes me miss our days at NUNM. <laughs> Where we used to sit around and just like geek out about science all the time. Yeah. Yes, yes. I envy your I envy your postdocs, but hopefully our, our paths will cross, you know, more and more now that we're getting back out into the world. Um thank you so much for joining me today on, on New Frontiers. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun to talk with you. As always, thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine where our sponsors help bring the very best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. Not everyone can be a sponsor on my platform, and I so appreciate the good work, the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Biotics, Rupa Health, and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic and can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com and integrativepro.com, and please tell them you learned about them on New Frontiers. If it's not too much to ask, I would appreciate a thumbs up and a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.